Let me tell you a story, podcast number 51. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago, never mind it is a how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Wow, Podcast 51. That's pretty amazing because we've been a bit random about our podcasting schedule. But we've passed a milestone and we're well on our way to 100 episodes. The first 50 were fun and we're grateful you joined us for the ride. We have a special guest for you today, right here in our living room studio, Dr. Lori Bauer. She's not only a good friend, she's an author who's written two books of a fantasy trilogy titled Fairy Wars. Steve will start us off by asking Lori about her writing and then... Uh, as she's graciously agreed to do, she'll read an excerpt from the first book in the series. Lori, glad you're with us. What made you choose fantasy? The reason I decided I wanted to write fantasy was because I was a kid with a lot of imagination. Uh, my mom loved to take me to plays and the theater, and I loved to just sit there and get lost in the story. And when I was a kid, we didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a lot of toys. And so I would imagine, as I was playing out in the yard, that there would be creatures running around the yard with me under leaves, hiding under leaves, and just out of my sight. And I'd lift a leaf, and sure enough, there was movement. I'm sure it was just a bug, but to me, it seemed like it was a fairy. And I used to play with these fairies. I named them. I gave them families. I did all kinds of things. And so as an adult, finally, after retiring from teaching writing, I said, what kind of novel would I like to write? I've written some short stories that are mysteries and suspense, but I really, if I'm going to do novels, I want to do fantasy because I love the imagination. I always have, and I loved imagining strange worlds with all kinds of unbelievable characters. And so that's kind of why I chose fantasy. Lori, I know you have a PhD. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, my PhD is in rhetoric and composition. The rhetoric side of the degree, which is an English degree, is the study of texts, both oral and written, and the composition side is the study of the art of teaching writing. I wanted to get this degree. I couldn't get it here in Idaho, so I went to Nevada. I wanted to get this degree because I wanted to teach writing and get other people excited about writing and also about reading. Uh, and I was able to teach for about 15 years at the college level. I taught literature, humanities, lots of different kinds of literature, um, lots of different kinds of writing, including creative nonfiction, creative writing, business writing, college English, etc. When I think of fairies, I don't think of war. How do you put those two together? Interesting question, Steve. Uh, fairies, we know, are well, we think of them from Disney, mostly, as being sort of nondescript, benign little creatures with wings that fly around and are cheery and chipper. And that's not my concept of a fairy. My concept of a fairy is a soldier, someone who um, defends their life and their liberties to the death, basically. And so that was part of the reason that I, I juxtaposed fairies with war. Part of the reason is I don't like war. I really hate war. 
and I see it as a necessary evil in our country but and in our world, but I just really wanted to be against it. And so this book, in a way, is anti-war. I mean, yes, it's about a big age-old battle that has gone on for centuries, but in one respect, it's really saying that war never accomplishes anything. And in fact, that's a quote at the beginning of my second book, is that really the cause of war, which is hatred, is never resolved. So I thought it would be interesting to juxtapose these two ideas of the sweet little fairies and the nice little creatures in fairyland with a war that was being fought against very dark beings such as trolls and ogres. And really that would be a comment upon our own society and about how uh, we are sometimes thrust into war when we don't want to have to fight. Thanks, Lori. Thanks for joining us. And now, now she's going to read from her book. This is from Chapter 1 of Fairy Wars, The Dark Ones. And we're starting with Chapter 1, Royal Trouble. My name is Kaylin with a long A, Bartholomew Ambrose. One day, ten years ago, I was fishing at the Sylvia River in the Wardle Mountains with my friend Gamble, who I've known since college. During our hike to the river, I cut my ankle on a strange, spiny plant. I cleaned and bandaged the wound, but it swelled, itched, and burned like fire. Anxious to get home to apply antibacterial cream, I hastened to help Gamble break down camp. Next, something happened that forever changed my life. When I'm packing up our gear, I see peripheral movement. Assuming it's the wind kicking up forest debris, I ignore it and help fold our two-person tent and put out the campfire. The morning has the last chill of winter, and I shiver, my breath visible while I work. As birds twitter in the trees, I traipse down to the riverbank, fill a bucket with water, and carry it over to our fire pit, a circle of charcoal-stained river rock that smells like burnt pine. I stop in front of the rocks and lift the bucket to douse the remaining embers when a squeal reaches my ears. I look over at Gamble, who's still bent over the rolled-up tent, tying ropes around it. He's not the source of the sound and apparently hasn't heard it. I look around to determine the squeal's origin when I hear a high-pitched voice below me say, Hey, you, move your foot. You're about to break mine. To my surprise, when I look down, there stands a tiny, pointy-eared creature with translucent, rainbow-colored wings, one of which is wedged under my foot, along with his arm. I know this sounds strange, but he's not much taller than a pencil and has a tiny crown made from purple flowers and green leaves. His eyes are large and black as night, and he sparkles from head to toe, like someone sprinkled him with gold glitter." I set the bucket down and raise my foot to let the little creature go. Disturbed about my mental health, I turn away, deciding the cut on my leg is probably infected, causing visions. I'm certainly not going to converse with an illusion. I squint and look over at Gamble to see if he's seen or heard anything. He's still bent over the tent, oblivious to my hallucination. Wait, the creature urges in his high, squeaky voice. I turn back and say, am I dreaming? I bend down further, coughing a little from campfire smoke. The birds have stopped singing, and I ask, Who are you? You're not dreaming. I'm Prince Enlil, heir to the fairy throne and son of King Aubrey, owner of these woods. I stopped here to warm myself by your fire, only to be attacked by you. And who, impertinent sir, are you? The winged creature rubs his freed arm, and I notice one of his luminous wings is bent. My name's Kaylin, I say, and following the fairy style of introduction, add, 
a clock repairman and son of Mortimer. But these woods are public, not private. I don't know what you're jabbing about over there, Gamble says. I look over my shoulder as he straightens and turns around the tent on his shoulder. Of course these woods are public. Now, if you don't mind, would you help me finish loading up? My friend apparently has not heard the creature. The fairy prince flutters his wings a little, ignores Gamble, and continues in his squeaky voice. Well, clockmaker Kaolin, it's nice to make your acquaintance, but you are mistaken. You're trespassing on my family's land as it's been for hundreds of years. You can be grateful that we, the fairy race, allow you humans to traverse and even settle in these woods. In older days, fairies cursed those who dared usurp our territory. But we now consider you humans our allies, since many of you are benevolent and sympathetic to our cause. Now, Sir Kalen, he peers up at me, are you one of those humans? Are you a benevolent and generous man, someone people seek out when they are in trouble? Or are you an angry, selfish man with few friends and few allies? I kneel and whisper my reply, not wanting Gamble to think me crazier than he already does. Well, I don't know how to answer that, I shrug. I was a Boy Scout when I was younger, and part of our motto was do a good turn daily. I suppose I've done my share of helping and serving others, but mostly I'm a simple man, nothing special. I'm not a bad person, but not an angel either. Why do you ask? Behind me, I hear the punctuated clangs of metal cookware being violently packed. Gamble apparently hears my whispers and mutters about self-absorbed people who talk to themselves to avoid work. Well, let us hope you are good enough, Kalen, son of Mortimer. In fact, let us hope there's something of a hero in you, for you have been chosen. Prince Enlil puts one hand on his waist. Now I'm late for an important appointment and must go. I bid you good day, but we will meet again, you can be sure. Oh, and be prepared. Your foot that stepped on me is going to cause discomfort. The fairy brandishes a golden wand I hadn't noticed before and taps the tip of his bent wing with it. The appendage immediately straightens. He flutters the wing a couple of times and then touches his left arm with the wand. Ah, much better. For a moment, he hovers above our dying campfire as if testing out the newly repaired wing. Until we meet again. Wait, your highness, I shout. I have more questions. From behind me, Gamble asks, your highness, what's wrong with you, buddy? With a frenzied flurry of wings, the fairy prince shoots up and away and is gone almost before I can blink. I pour the water bucket on the fire, which sizzles and pops, sending a plume of musty smoke into the air, and turn to Gamble, who's staring at me with a concerned look. Lines form between his rather ample brows as he asks, Have you lost your bind? He leans closer and peers into my eyes. Or are you trying to get me to do all the work? I hold my palms out to him. Didn't you see him? Didn't you hear him? What are you talking about? The tiny creature with wings. Oh, come on now, Kalen, he raises his eyebrows. Your brain's been affected by those ghost stories we told around the campfire last night. No, I mean it. His name was Prince Enlil, and he had wings, Gamble. Real wings! <laughs> Very funny. One corner of his mouth twists in a smirk. I must say, you have an imagination. I'm serious. I know it sounds crazy, but he was here and he was real. I realize my voice has taken on a desperate tone. Gamble continues to stare at me as if I've lost my mind, but then he looks around, searching our campsite. Finally, he shakes his head. Sorry, dude, I don't see any flying creatures except the birds. He points to a crow cawing from the top of a ponderosa pine. Okay, Gamble nods. You could be suffering after effects from that cut on your ankle, 
Or maybe those mushrooms we ate last night were bad. They can cause hallucinations, you know. I lower my head, rub my eyes, and think maybe the fairy was a vision. Never mind. I was rehearsing more bedtime fantasies to tell your children. He sighs, sounding relieved. They look forward to your stories. But if you start having fantasies about beautiful women, be sure to share those with me. We hoist up our gear and in several trips from the campsite to Gamble's pickup, pack everything in the bed and tie a tarp over it. As I make trips to the pickup, I notice how green the forest looks, almost hurting my eyes with its brilliance, how noisy the birds and rustling leaves are, and how strong the pungent scents of pine and sweet wildflowers assault my nose. I even smell something musty. Mushrooms? It's like my senses are being bombarded. I wonder if the cut from that spiny plant gave me more than visions. Maybe it was some kind of super hallucinogen. After leaving our campsite and with his tongue stuck out of the corner of his mouth, Gamble careens his pickup down the mountain curves he knows so well. He loves the sounds of flailing gravel on his fenders. I also know he's anxious to return home to his family after a weekend away. Unlike Gamble, I'm single, preferring my own company to the challenge of living with another. As the only one left in my family, I'm used to being alone, and solitude suits me. I eat when I want, sleep when I want, and work as diligently or as lazily as my mood dictates, because I own a home-based clock repair business. All in all, I live a quiet existence, with a place for everything and everything in its place. Some might call my life dull or conventional, but I prefer order to chaos. In my experience, predictable clocks are easier to work with than unpredictable people. I'm able to fix one, but not the other. Gamble drops me off at home that afternoon, and from the bed of his pickup under the tarp, I grab my backpack, my sleeping bag, tackle box, and fishing pole. I thank him for the ride and head toward my front door. My house is situated on two acres at the northern edge of Mansentia Forest. The nearest neighbor is a couple of miles away. Our crime rate is very low in Bishop Province, so I don't lock my doors. I've considered getting a dog to discourage the occasional nomad, but for now the quiet is nicer than the responsibility of a pet. My modest clapboard home is 50 years old and consists of two bedrooms, a kitchen, a bath, and a small living room. I've rented this place for three years from a crusty old gentleman named Hank, who now resides in assisted living. Although Hank has offered to sell me the property, and I'd buy it in a minute, I can't afford it. For some reason, clock repair is seasonal, mostly autumn and winter, so I doubt I could secure a mortgage. Despite the clapboard's weathered appearance, it's in fairly good condition, although it has elderly creaks and groans. The floors squeak when I walk, the pipes leak, and the electrical system trips circuit breakers and blows fuses at the most inopportune times, like the time I invited Gamble and his family to dinner. Until a few years ago when my sister Cassie took pity on me, my home was sparsely furnished with second-hand pieces. Cassie put up curtains non-frilly at my insistence and hung a decorative mirror and a peaceful forest painting. She also added throw pillows in masculine colors like brown and gray. I leave my camping gear on the kitchen counter and do my usual walkthrough to make sure no pipes are leaking, nothing's on fire, and no one's intruded in my absence. Even though my, my possessions are well-worn, every object in the old house, from my favorite turquoise recliner to my vintage tube-type radio, seems crystal clear, exhibiting sharp edges, as if I'm looking through a magnifying glass, which gives me a slight headache. I smell old garbage in my wastebasket, an odor I hadn't noticed yesterday morning, as well as the scent of onions from yesterday's breakfast, 
as if I've just taken the pan off the stove. I swear I can see the fabrics weave in my favorite chair and each particle of dust on the radio. I'll be glad when the effects of this crazy scratch on my leg wear off. I disinfect and rebandage the cut on my leg, which is miraculously healed during the day, but my left foot that stepped on the print still tingles. Purely psychological, I'm sure. Now I'm going to take a little gap here in the reading, and in, the, in this uh, part I'm leaving out, he just fixes a couple of clocks, because he has a clock repairment. So we're going to pick it up where he's finished fixing the clocks, and he's about to have dinner. When I look up from my work, the light from the windows has dimmed. I leave my workbench to fix a dinner of pork, boiled potatoes, and steamed broccoli, which tastes incredibly good due to my new heightened senses. I settle down for a quiet evening of reading, mostly trade journals, like clock springs and movements, and a nationally syndicated evening newspaper, Modern Times. I usually wear reading glasses, which I've needed since my senior year of college, but inexplicably, I don't need them tonight. I get up from time to time to check on my newly repaired clock, which seems to be working fine. The timepieces, including the hair cuckoo clock, strike six o'clock when I can no longer ignore my throbbing foot, which has nagged me for most of the afternoon and which I attribute to a day of hiking. Since I put my feet up in the turquoise recliner to read, the tingle in that foot has changed to stinging, then to burning, and finally to searing. The pain has reached the point where I don't want to get up anymore to check on the newly repaired clock. I take my hiking boot and sock off to discover my foot is now a peculiar shade of green, like mashed peas, and sports oozing yellow welts on top. As soon as I remove my boot, the foot swells. I stare at my distended appendage in disbelief. Surely that tiny fairy prince, who didn't even touch my bare skin, couldn't have caused this. Wasn't he an illusion after all? Yet he warned me to watch out for my foot. Not sure how to treat this malady, I hopped to the bathroom to find something soothing to spread on my foot. Wind rattles the shutters, which is how I feel, rattled by pain and strange sensations. I hear thunder rumble in the distance. By the time I reach the bathroom, I can hardly stand. Thank you, Laurie. You can find her books online, and you can reach her at llbower.com. That's B-O-W-E-R. It's time for Treasure Island. And I'll start with just the last little bit of chapter 11 and go right into 12, which is called Council of War. But the little bit of 11 here. Just then a sort of brightness fell upon me in the barrel, and... Looking up, I found the moon had risen and was silvering the mizzen top and shining white on the luff of the foresail. And almost at the same time, the voice of the lookout shouted, Land ho! <laughs> Chapter 12, Council of War. There was a great rush of feet across the deck. I could hear people tumbling up from the cabin and the forset and slipping in an instant outside my barrel, I dived behind the foresail and made a double towards the stern and came out upon the open deck in time to join Hunter and Dr. Livesey in the rush for the weather bow. There all hands were already congregated. A belt of fog had lifted almost simultaneously with the appearance of the moon. Away to the southwest of us 
we saw two low hills about a couple of miles apart, and rising behind one of them, a third and higher hill, whose peak was still buried in the fog. All three seemed sharp and conical in figure. So much I saw almost in a dream, for I had not yet recovered from my horrid fear of a minute or two before. And then I heard the voice of Captain Smollett issuing orders. The Hispaniola was laid a couple of points nearer the wind and now sailed a course that would just clear the island on the east. And now, men, said the captain, when all was sheeted home, has any one of you ever seen that land ahead? I have, sir, said Silver. I've watered there with a trader I was cooking. The anchorage is on the south behind an islet, I fancy, asked the captain. Yes, sir, Skeleton Island, they calls it. It were a main place for pirates once, and a hand we had on board knowed all their names for it. That hill to the north they call the Foremast Hill. There are three hills in a row running southward, four, main, and mizzen, sir. But the main, that's the big un, with the cloud on it, they usually calls the spyglass by reason of a lookout they kept when they was in the anchorage cleaning. For it's there they clean their ships, sir, asking your pardon. I have a chart here, says Captain Smollett. See if that's the place. Long John's eyes burned in his head as he took the chart. But by the fresh look of the paper, I knew he was doomed to disappointment. This was not the map we found in Billy Bone's chest, but an accurate copy complete in all things, names and heights and soundings, with a single exception of the red crosses and the written notes. Sharp as must have been his annoyance, Silver had the strength of mind to hide it. Yes, sir, said he, this is the spot, to be sure, and very prettily drawn out. Who might have done that, I wonder? The pirates were too ignorant, I reckon. Ah, here it is, Captain Kidd's Anchorage, just the name my shipmate called it. There's a strong current runs along the south, and then way nor up the west coast. Right you was, sir, says he, to haul your wind and keep the weather of the island. Leastways, if such was your intention as to enter and careen, and there ain't no better place for that in these waters. Thank you, my man, says Captain Smollett. I'll ask you later on to give us a help. You may go. I was surprised at the coolness with which John avowed his knowledge of the island, and I own I was half frightened when I saw him drawing nearer to myself. He did not know to be sure that I had overheard his counsel from the apple barrel, and yet I had by this time taken such a horror of his cruelty, duplicity, and power that I could scarce conceal a shudder when he laid his hand upon my arm. Ah, says he, this here is a sweet spot, this island, a sweet spot for a lad to get ashore on. You'll bathe and you'll climb trees and you'll hunt goats, you will, and you'll get aloft on them hills like a goat yourself. Why, it makes me young again. I was going to forget my timber leg, I was. It's a pleasant thing to be young and have ten toes, and you may lay to that. When you want to go a bit of exploring, you just ask old John, and he'll put up a snack for you to take along. And clapping me in the friendliest way upon the shoulder, he hobbled off forward and went below. Captain Smollett 
the squire, and Dr. Livesey were talking together on the quarterdeck. And anxious as I was to tell them my story, I durst not interrupt them openly. While I was still casting about in my thoughts to find some probable excuse, Dr. Livesey called me to his side. He had left his pipe below, and being a slave to tobacco, it meant that I should fetch it. But as soon as I was near enough to speak and not to be overheard, I broke out immediately. Doctor, let me speak. Get the captain and squire down to the cabin, and then make some pretense to send for me. I have terrible news. The doctor changed countenance a little, but next moment he was master of himself. Thank you, Jim, said he quite loudly. That was all I wanted to know, as if he had asked me a question. And with that, he turned on his heel and rejoined the other two. They spoke together for a little, and though none of them started or raised his voice or so much as whistled, it was plain enough that Dr. Livesey had communicated my request, for the next thing that I heard was the captain giving an order to Job Anderson, and all hands were piped on deck. My lads, said Captain Smollett, I've a word to say to you. This land that we have sighted is the place we have been sailing for. Mr. Trelawney, being a very open-handed gentleman, as we all know, has just asked me a word or two, and as I was able to tell him that every man on board had done his duty, alow and aloft, as I never asked to see it done better, why, he and I and the doctor are going below to the cabin to drink your health and luck, and you'll have grog served out for you to drink out our health and luck. I'll tell you what I think of this. I think it handsome. And if you think as I do, you'll give a good sea cheer for the gentleman that does it. The cheer followed. That was a matter of course. But it rang out so full and hearty that I confess I could hardly believe these same men were plotting for our blood. One more cheer for Captain Smollett, cried Long John, when the first had subsided. And this also was given with a will. On the top of that, the three gentlemen went below, and not long after, word was sent forward that Jim Hawkins was wanted in the cabin. I found them all three seated round the table, a bottle of Spanish wine and some raisins before them, and the doctor smoking away with his wig on his lap, and that, I knew, was a sign that he was agitated. The stern window was open, for it was a warm night, and you could see the moon shining behind on the ship's wake. Now, Hawkins, said the squire, you have something to say. Speak up. I did as I was bid, and as short as I could make it, told the whole details of Silver's conversation. Nobody interrupted me till I was done, nor did any one of the three of them make so much as a movement, but they kept their eyes upon my face from first to last. Jim, said Dr. Livesey, take a seat. And they made me sit down at table beside them, poured me out a glass of wine, filled my hands with raisins, and all three, one after the other, and each with a bow, drank my good health, and then service to me for my luck and courage. Now, Captain, said the squire, you were right and I was wrong. I own myself an ass, and I await your orders. No more an ass than I, sir, returned the captain. I never heard of a crew that meant to mutiny, but what showed no signs before, for any man that had an eye in his head to see the mischief and take steps according. But this crew, he added, beats me. 
Captain, said the doctor, with your permission, that's Silver, a very remarkable man. He'd look remarkably well from a yard arm, sir, returned the captain. But this is talk. This don't lead to anything. I see three or four points, and with Mr. Trelawney's permission, I'll name them. You, sir, are the captain. It is for you to speak, says Mr. Trelawney, grandly. First point, began Mr. Smollett. We must go on, because we can't turn back. If I gave the word to go about, they would rise at once. Second point, we have time before us, at least, until this treasure's found. Third point, there are faithful hands. Now, sir, it's got to come to blows sooner or later. And what I propose is to take time by the forelock, as the saying is, and come to blows some fine day when they least expect it. We can count, I take it, on your own home servants, Mr. Trelawney? As upon myself, declared the squire. Three, reckoned the captain. Ourselves make seven, counting Hawkins here. Now, about the honest hands. Most likely Trelawney's own men, said the doctor. Those he had picked up for himself before he lit on silver. Nay, replied the squire. Hands was one of mine. I did think I could have trusted hands, added the captain. And to think that they're all Englishmen, broke out the squire. Sir, I could find it in my heart to blow the ship up. Well, gentlemen, said the captain, the best that I can say is not much. We must lay to, if you please, and keep a bright lookout. It's trying on a man, I know. It would be pleasanter to come to blows, but there's no help for it till we know our men. Lay to and whistle for a wind, that's my view. Jim here, said the doctor, can help us more than anyone. The men are not shy with him, and Jim is a noticing lad. Hawkins, I put prodigious faith in you, added the squire. I began to feel pretty desperate at this, for I felt altogether helpless, and yet by an odd train of circumstances, it was indeed through me that safety came. In the meantime, talk as we pleased, there were only seven out of the twenty-six on whom we knew we could rely. And out of these seven, one was a boy, so that the grown men on our side were six to their nineteen. We're still in Chapter 12 of Winds of Wyoming. In the previous section, Kate had been out dancing with Clint, but she had hit her ankle on a table leg and couldn't dance anymore, and had to go home early. The next morning, Kate's ankle was better, but her mind felt like it was on a ride across bumpy roads with nothing to hang on to for stability. She fed Trudy, hardly noticing the calf. Instead, she replayed her mental video of Tara and Ramsey walking into the Wild Bunch saloon. When the calf was finished, Kate brushed her coat to a copper sheen, trying to guess why Jerry Ramsey and Tara Hughes would be together. No answers came to mind. All she knew was that Tara hated her as much as Ramsey was obsessed with her. Somehow, she had a feeling the pairing of those two sick but powerful personalities forecast turbulent weather ahead. She heard footsteps and shaded her eyes to look up into the morning sunshine. 
Mike stood beside the corral, his forearms on the top rail. Trudy's looking spiffy this morning. Kate smiled, thinking Mike was the one who looked spiffy. Though he must have already put in a couple hours of work, he looked like he'd just stepped from the shower. He grinned, and his freshly shaved cheeks creased. Despite her determination to forget her feelings for him, Kate's heart flipped a cartwheel. Good morning. Where's Tramp? When I saw you grooming the calf, I sent him back to the house. He'd get her all riled up and dirty. Thank you. This is a big day for this little girl. Kate stood. She does look pretty, doesn't she? Mike laughed. As much as I love my bison, I'd never thought of them as pretty. Not even the calves. I'll stick with Spiffy. Did you hear that, Trudy? You look Spiffy. She scratched the calf's chin. The guests will love you. Trudy lifted her nose and grunted her approval. That they will. Mike rubbed his boot on the bottom rail. Say, Kate, I was wondering about... Her pulse began to pound. Had Ramsey told Tara about her past? Tara would surely tell Mike if she knew. I was wondering if you'd like to ride to the canyon late tomorrow afternoon for a campfire supper. Just the two of us. Her mouth opened, but she could not think of a reply. As much as Mike made her heart go pitter-patter, she couldn't tread any further into the quicksand of his troubled relationship with his fiance, or Tara's relationship with Ramsey. He stared at her, a hopeful expression on his face. Kate closed her mouth, opened it, and then closed it again. Finally, she spoke. You know I can't do that. She set the brush on a post. He frowned. Why can't you? You know why. She opened the gate, closed it, and walked away, the frantic drumbeat of her heart muffling Trudy's cries. Kate met Bethany and Tricia in the dining hall to plan the garden layout. She didn't tell the girls, but along with other minimum security prisoners, she attended a community garden in Pittsburgh her final summer at Patterson. She was excited to garden again, and glad Bethany and Tricia would help her and Laura plant the huge plot. They roughed out a schematic using the seed list Laura provided before they walked over to the office to get her approval. Nice job, ladies, Laura tapped the paper. I like the wide separation between beds so we can reach the plants. Oh, look, Trisha pointed at the open window behind the counter. That chipmunk is peeking in the window. She took Bethany's arms. Let's see how close we can get. Laura turned to Kate. Change the subject. I don't know if you normally attend church, but you're welcome to go with me tomorrow morning, if you'd like. Though she'd attended prison services, Kate knew she wasn't good enough to go to church with regular people. But how could she tell her boss she wouldn't ride with her? What church do you go to? It's on the other side of Copperville, a little place called Highway Haven House of God. I stopped there on the, my way here, Kate said, and met a lady named Dimple Forbes. You lucky person, Laura beamed. Dimple is a darling. She's there every Sunday. I can make sure you two connect if you'd like to see her again. I'd love to. Two short, pudgy women with bottle-bright red hair, sequin glasses, and a host of freckled wrinkles bustled into the lobby. Except for the red jacket and red hair bow worn by one, and the blue jacket and blue hair bow worn by the other, they were identical. 
Mamie and Minnie Curtis, Laura hurried to hug them. It's so good to see you again. Laura, Laura, both women squealed, evidently very fond of Laura. She stepped back. What is this, the seventh or eighth summer you've come to the WP? It's our ninth visit, the woman in red held up nine fingers. Next year will be ten years, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. The woman in blue nodded. We figured that out on the ride from Laramie. Oh, how we miss this place when we're away. Even mangy, she winked at the moose head. Goodness gracious, Laura took their hands. You've become part of our family. Speaking of family, the woman in blue later ringed fingers on Laura's arm. We were so sorry to learn about Dan. You must miss him dearly, and so do we. Thank you, Minnie. I know he would be delighted to see you two again if he were here. But we're adjusting, and the ranch will continue as always. She motioned to Kate. One nice adjustment is the addition of Kate Nielsen to our staff. She's handling Dan's marketing responsibilities. The twins each shook her hand. And I'm sure you remember Tricia and Bethany. The girls turned from the window. Mamie and Minnie hugged them. How could we forget such delightful young ladies? Kate asked how long they planned to stay. Mamie beamed. Six wonderful weeks, she gazed at her sister. This year is extra special. Minnie clasped her hands. We're going on a buffalo hunt. The women clutched each other, their faces glowing. Kate stared at them. Buffalo hunt? Where did they get such a crazy idea? Did Mike know? She looked at Laura, who did not appear surprised by the comment. In fact, she was smiling too. The lobby door opened, and two gray-haired men dressed in worn plaid shirts and faded jeans stepped in, each holding a straw cowboy hat. Their leather belts were anchored by enormous silver buckles, partially hidden by overhanging bellies. Tan cheeks, pale foreheads, white-whiskered chins, and poorly cut hair suggested they were not guests. Elliot. Emmett. Laura's normally melodic voice had turned to lead. What brings you two to our neck of the woods? The men fidgeted with their hats. Finally, the shorter brother cleared his throat. Well, um, Miss Miss Duncan, we just came to pay our respects to the deceased. May he, uh, may his uh, remains rest in peace. Dan died last fall, Emmett, months ago. You could have paid your respects at the funeral, along with everyone else. He was real busy about that time, wasn't we, Elliot? Elliot nodded. Laura folded her arms. The other women in the room folded theirs and stood taller. Kate stepped closer to Laura, her stance wide. The brothers glanced from woman to woman, their hoary heads jerking like wind-up toys. Finally, they wound down. Elliot smoothed the few hairs on his scalp. Gotta get to town. Emmett scratched his hairy nostril. Looks like you're still in operation. The Whispering Pines is doing just fine, is that what, if that's what you boys came to find out. But I'd appreciate it if you kept your snoopy, pointy noses out of our affairs. Emmett stuck his chest out. Just what does that mean? Kate clenched her fists. Laura placed a hand on Kate's arm. You know what it means. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a ranch to run. She turned her back on the men and moved behind the counter. 
Shoving their dirty, misshapen hats under their heads, the brothers stomped out of the lobby. The screen door slammed behind them. For a moment, the room was quiet. Then Bethany high-fived Laura. Good for you, Mrs. D. It's about time somebody put those Clifford brothers in their place. They try to run all the ranches around here, when their own place is a trash heap. Thanks, Bethany. I had to at least act brave, or those two would have been here every day, telling me and Mike what to do. Dan had a lot of trouble with them. Her hands quivered as she straightened a stack of brochures. Kate placed her hands on the countertop. Are you okay? Laura grinned. I am better than okay, she spread her arms wide. I am fabulous. I've been wanting to give those old geezers a piece of my mind for a long, long time. It's an election season, and there are some quotes here that have to do with either um, voting or something political. So I would take from W.C. Fields first. I never vote for anybody. I always vote against. And Jay Leno, if God had wanted us to vote, he would have given us candidates. Here's one by Teddy Roosevelt. When they call the roll in the Senate, the senators do not know whether to answer present or not guilty. From Reagan, I have left orders to be awakened at any time in case of national emergency, even if I'm in a cabinet meeting. (laughs) And the last one is by Jimmy Carter, who said, My esteem in this country has gone up substantially. It is very nice now when people wave at me. They use all their fingers. And with that, I'll wave goodbye using all my fingers. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story. <laughs>